would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. If you're using the red Bibles and the chairs around you, I believe it's on pages 888 and 889. We're looking at the beginning part of chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 1 and we're going to go down through verse 29. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, why do you, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Let's pray together. Father, we read this story of this woman whose eyes were opened 
to see Jesus for who he is. And we pray that that would be the case for us right here, right now as well. Open our eyes and help us to see Jesus. Encourage us with the truth of the gospel, the peace that is ours in Christ. And fill us with a burning desire for more people to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I love to tell people about our church. I think one of the most beautiful things about our church family is how many different kinds of people we have in our church family. It really is astounding if you think about it. We have healthcare professionals whose names are known around the country and even around the world. And we have people whose names are known only by their friends and family. We have farmers. We have law enforcement officers. We have stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads. We have artists. We have people who are teaching in the public schools and people who teach at the Christian school. We have people who are working in vocational ministry. We have people who have grown up in the church and people who are brand new to the church. We have people with notable wealth and we have people who have very little to their name. We have people with different political convictions. We have lots of introverts. We have some extroverts too. We have people who know what the inside of a courtroom looks like as the defendant. And we also have people who can't ever imagine being in trouble with the law. We have people who relate more to the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son, having lived a life of rebellion and moral failures. And we have people who relate more to the older brother in the parable, rule keepers, people who always want to try to do the right thing. All different kinds of people, but we all have one particular thing in common with each other. We are all sinners who need Jesus. We are all sinners who need the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful picture of how the gospel applies to all these different kinds of people so different from one another. And we see something like that uh, going on with John's gospel at this portion that we are entering into in chapter 3 and chapter 4. John put these stories of these two conversations with these extremely different people right next to each other. One with Nicodemus that we looked at a few weeks ago. And then today's story of the conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. They are two utterly different people. Nicodemus was a Jew. He was an insider. He was morally upright. He was known and respected in the community. He was likely wealthy, educated, and he was a man. And notice we're given his name, Nicodemus. This woman that Jesus speaks to in John chapter 4 was an outsider. She was a Samaritan. She was considered a heretic by the Jewish people. She was uneducated. She was poor. And she was a woman. And notice we're not given her name. Very different people that John puts right next to each other in his gospel. But they both had the same need. They both were sinners who needed Jesus. They both were sinners who needed the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John makes it clear by putting these two contrasting people next to one another that the gospel applies to both. 
It applies to all kinds of different people. What I want us to see today as we look at these verses is that Jesus shows us how we can talk to others about him. How we can have a conversation with all kinds of different people about Jesus. That's a scary subject for many of us. The idea of talking to people about Jesus, it produces fear, anxiety, and worry in most of our minds. We don't like to be inconvenienced to have a conversation about faith in Jesus Jesus Christ. That's something I struggle with as well. And John here is helping us to see what it looks like if we have a conversation with others about Jesus. Jesus shows us that there's no real need for fear and anxiety. It's as simple as having a conversation with someone in the midst of the ordinary circumstances of life. Now, as we begin chapter four, we get the context of what's happening in the first four verses. We're told by John that Jesus knew that he was starting to attract more and more attention from the Pharisees. And it wasn't Jesus's time to be arrested yet and to go to the cross. And so he knew he needed to get out of the area, let things settle down a bit. And so we're told that he left Jerusalem and Judea and headed for Galilee. He traveled north and he passed through Samaria, John tells us. I want you to notice in verse 4, he says he had to pass through Samaria. That's actually not the truth. It's not the case. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. There was a main road that went uh, straight up north uh, through Samaria that Jesus took. But there was another road that pious Jews would take so that they didn't have to go through Samaria. They would travel east and cross the Jordan River and then go north and come back around so that they never had to go into Samaria. The little word that John uses here for had to is the Greek word dei. It means it is necessary. And what John is telling us here is that it was necessary for Jesus to go to Samaria because he had a divine appointment with this Samaritan woman at the well. Today, I want us to see several things from this passage. First, I want us to look at the degree that Jesus went to to speak with this woman. And then secondly, the manner with which he spoke to her. Thirdly, the content of what he talked to her about. And then we'll see the result of their conversation. So first of all, the degree that Jesus went to to speak with this woman. I already mentioned that Jesus went to Samaria. That was a huge boundary that Jesus was crossing. Not a geographical boundary. It was a cultural and religious boundary. That's why John puts in the parenthetical comment at the end of verse 9 that the Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. They wouldn't talk to them. They wouldn't engage with them. The Samaritans, you may know, were people who originated back in the 8th century B.C. At that time, Israel, as a nation, was split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And in 722 B.C., The the nation of Assyria came and invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and took it over. And what they did was they rounded up all of the important and influential Jewish people in the northern kingdom and they shipped them back to Assyria. And then they imported Assyrians and other foreigners into the land. Over decades and centuries, the Jews who had been left in the northern kingdom intermarried with the Assyrians 
They even adopted many of the Assyrians' pagan beliefs and practices. They ended up with a mix between faithful Jewish beliefs and practices and the Assyrians' false practices and false beliefs. The Samaritans only held that the first five books of the Bible were God's word. None of the rest of the Jewish scriptures were considered uh, God's word. And rather than going to Jerusalem to worship, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which is the mountain that's referenced in the story. Those are Samaritans. Now, I say those are Samaritans because I learned this week that there still exist Samaritans in the world today that trace their roots all the way back to the to the uh, early times in the in the Old Testament. They live in the same place. They practice the same faith and religion that we read about here in this story. In Jesus's day, Jewish people hated the Samaritans. They were thought of as heretics. They were seen as being racially inferior. They were thought of as lesser human beings. They were despised by the Jews. So when Jesus goes to Samaria and stops and engages with a Samaritan, it shows the degree that Jesus was willing to go to to have a conversation with this lady. You can see the degree that Jesus went to also in verse 6. We're told that it was a long journey. would have probably taken several days for the walk. And by the time he got to this town of Sychar, we're told that it was the sixth hour. That's the hottest part of the day. And Jesus was, as it says, weary. He was worn out. He was tired. He was thirsty. And if it had been me, the last thing I would have wanted to do is to talk with someone and engage in a conversation. But this is Jesus. And we see the degree that he was willing to go to to tell a sinner about the good news of the gospel. Even though he's weary, even though he's tired, even though he's, he's thirsty, he's willing to talk with this, with this woman. You can see the degree that he went to also in verse, uh, the beginning part of verse 7. Because it wasn't just any Samaritan that walked up. This was a, a woman that walked up. And in that culture, a Jewish man would not talk to random women. They would have considered it rude, impious, and even dangerous. And this was a Samaritan woman. One of the last kinds of people uh, a Jewish man would engage with and speak to. As we find out later in the passage, this woman was also someone who had a moral, morally questionable past. It's likely why she came to the well in the middle part of the day alone. She was probably an outcast and ashamed and she didn't want to be seen by others. But Jesus was not afraid. Jesus was not ashamed to speak with her. That's the degree that Jesus would go to to tell a sinner about himself. You can see the degree that Jesus went to at the end of verse 7 as well. He asked the Samaritan woman for a drink. That meant that he wasn't just asking for water, but he also was asking for a cup or a ladle that he could drink the water out of. But Jews didn't share eating and drinking utensils with Samaritans. That would make you unclean. It would prevent you from being able to fellowship with the people of God and to worship God in the temple. But Jesus wasn't deterred by man-made purification rules. It shows the degree that Jesus would go to to present the good news of grace to a sinner. Why did he cover? Why did he cross all of these boundaries? Why would he go to such a degree? It's because he cared for this woman. He knew it was important for her to hear the gospel. 
He knew that she needed to hear about the Messiah who had come. So he was willing to cross ethnic and religious and gender and cultural boundaries. How about us? Now, obviously, we're never called to sin in order to reach out to people. Jesus didn't do that either. But we are called to cross boundaries. Boundaries that we find convenient. Boundaries that make us feel comfortable. Are we willing to speak to people that are different from ourselves? Who come from different backgrounds? Who come from different beliefs? Who come with different political convictions? Who come from a different lifestyle? Who come from different economic circumstances? We have to ask ourselves, to what degree do I love people enough to share the good news of God's grace to them? And if we're honest, it's probably not a very high degree. Rather, we're fueled by selfishness or indifference or just fear of talking to somebody else about Jesus. And when we recognize that, we need to come back to how much Jesus has and does love us. The degree of Jesus' love for us and the extent that Jesus went to secure our peace. And as we meditate on that, it'll melt our cold and indifferent and unwilling to be inconvenienced hearts. Now, before we move on to see the manner in which Jesus spoke with her, let me give you just a practical idea for something that you could try to, uh, try to put into place over the coming weeks. Would you be willing to commit yourself, first of all, to pray that the Lord would give you a greater love for people who do not know him? And secondly, would you commit yourself to make an effort to talk to two people you don't know each week? Maybe that conversation would lead to Jesus or maybe it wouldn't. But would you commit yourself just to speak with two people each week that you don't know? And as we see here, Jesus is engaged. He engaged this woman in the midst of an everyday life circumstance. They needed water. They were at a well and they had a conversation. So as you go through the coming weeks, would you be willing to commit yourself to pay attention to just the ordinary circumstances of life that you find yourself in? Of asking yourself intentionally in those moments, how does the gospel impact this moment right here and right now? We see the degree to which Jesus would go to speak with this woman, but we also see the manner in which Jesus engaged her. We can learn something about how to talk with people by the manner in which Jesus engaged her. Notice, he didn't ignore her. That's likely what most Jewish men in that context, that culture would have done in that situation, would have ignored her, completely acted as, as if she wasn't even there. But Jesus noticed her. He spoke to her. He acknowledged her existence. Notice, too, that he even asked the woman for a favor. He asked her for help. He put himself in a position where the woman was able to help him where she could solve a problem for him. There's kindness in doing that. There's dignity in doing that. Notice, too, that as he talked with her, he listened to her. He showed respect. He showed genuine interest in what she was talking about. He didn't seem like he was in a hurry. And he certainly didn't make the woman feel like he was in a hurry. 
He didn't come across as being bothered by the conversation or inconvenienced. He, he earnestly listened to her. And notice, too, that Jesus spoke to her, yes, clearly and directly about the truth, about the gospel, but he wasn't rude. He didn't put her down. He didn't shame her. He didn't even focus on all of the things that would have been different between them. He was firm, but he was gracious. He was respectful. He was kind. You can tell that he loved her as a lost soul and as his neighbor. So how about us? Someone sits down next to you on the airplane. Or as you're waiting for your car at the mechanics. And maybe you're reading a Christian book or maybe you even have your Bible there. They ask you a question. Or they make a comment to engage you. It's an opportunity to talk about Jesus. What's the manner and how you respond? Are you kind? Interested? Show, show the dignity of the person? Respectful? Intentionally listen? Make the person feel heard? Are you loving? Or are you short with them? And impatient, using body language that makes it obvious that you're not interested in having a conversation. Or use deflecting questions in order to shorten the conversation. In those moments when that's our default, I think we should ask ourselves, how would Jesus speak to us? How would Jesus speak to you if he came to your house this afternoon? What's the manner that Jesus would use as he would speak to you? That should motivate us to do the same with others that we engage with all of the time, but especially when we get into a conversation about Jesus. This is the manner in which Jesus engaged this woman. But I want us to see the content of what Jesus said to her. There's a lot here in terms of the content of their conversation and, and what Jesus was trying to help her to get to understand. You can see that beginning in verse 10. We look at verses 10 through 15. We, we can see as Jesus begins to engage, engage her. She had, she had asked him in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus answered her in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? This woman couldn't fathom the fact that Jesus was asking her for a, for a drink. And Jesus responds to her by telling her about a gift. Basically, he's saying he is a gift. He is the gift of God. And as he begins to talk about the idea of a gift, he's starting to help her to understand what the gospel is all about. A gift is something that you get. A gift is not something that you earn. A gift is something that is given to you for free. It's not something that you work for or deserve. And Jesus was beginning to help her to understand that the, that the gospel is God's grace. It's a gift. It's unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor and forgiveness. We see even more content as Jesus went on. He didn't just talk about a gift. He moved on to start talking about this idea of water. He took the everyday circumstance to where they found themselves at the well and the water that they were going to get to quench their thirst. 
And he began to change the conversation about living water, eternal water. The woman continued to be focused on this literal physical water. After all, they were at the well, they were thirsty, their throats were dry. But Jesus shifted the conversation from that literal water to a different kind, living water. And notice in verses 11 and 12, Jesus wasn't even deterred when the woman got a little, uh, a, a little bit snarky with Jesus. But you're talking about this living water that you have, but you don't even have something to get the water from. To get the water out of, out of, the, out of the well. This well was known as being one of the deepest in Samaria. It would have been a couple hundreds of feet deep. Jesus didn't have a bucket. He didn't have a rope. How is he going to get the water out? Is he greater than Jacob, whose well this actually was? But Jesus wasn't deterred by her bit of snarkiness. He kept on and pushing, wanting her to understand the preciousness of the gospel. He got even more clear with her in verses 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus is explaining to her this gift, this gift that is living water. It is a water that when you drink it, you never get thirsty again. It's so much better than the water that comes from this old well. This water will quench not only your thirst that you have in your mouth and your throat, it will quench the thirst of your soul. It'll be a spring of water that will not just refresh your body. It will bring eternal life to your soul. And in verse 15, although she probably doesn't completely get what Jesus is saying quite yet, she at least has a desire for what Jesus is talking about. But then I want you to notice what Jesus did next. Notice how Jesus changes the conversation just a bit in verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, this seems like a rather odd thing for Jesus to say. Seems out of place. Seems kind of random, kind of out of the blue. But it's not out of the blue at all. Jesus knew that for this woman to understand the gift that he was telling her about, for this woman to understand and appreciate what living water could do for her, she had to understand her need. Jesus is God. He is all-knowing. He is omniscient. And so he knew this woman's story. He knew about her marital background. This woman had been with at least six different men. And although in our culture today that really wouldn't be a big deal for most, in the first century it was scandalous. We're not told specifically what happened to these five husbands. It's possible each of them died of some cause. Maybe she's been a widow five times over. But it's more likely that this woman was someone who was known for sexual morality. At least that was her current situation. She was living with somebody that wasn't her husband. And Jesus went straight to that part of her story. He wanted her to understand sin. He wanted her to understand that she had a problem, that she had a need. And as she wrestled with the reality of her sin and the need for that sin to be taken away, She's listening to Jesus talk about the way it can be done. A water that if she would drink it, 
would well up into eternal life. In essence, what Jesus is saying to her in these verses is you don't need just this water to quench your thirst, to do your laundry and to clean your house. Your very soul is thirsty. You've been trying to quench that soul's thirst with men, with relationship, with intimacy. And he says that water will never do its job. As long as you keep drinking that water, you will always be soul thirsty. But if you drink the water that I have, this water that's a gift, that is given to you freely, that you can't earn, if you believe in me, if you put your faith in me, if you love me, then you will never thirst in your soul again. If you come to me, I will give you rest and I will quench, I will quench the thirst of your soul forever. Before we look at the final part of the content here, I just want to pause for a second and ask you to reflect. What are the things in your life that you're using to try to quench your soul? And this is true for Christians as well. We can do this as well. What are the things that are in your life that you use to try to quench the thirst of your soul? It could be good things like your career, success, being known, your children, academic success. A spouse. It could be bad things like pornography or alcohol. None of those things can ever ultimately quench our soul's thirst. Jesus is saying, if you want your soul's thirst quenched, you come to him and you drink from the living water that he gives. So there's one more part of the content here of this conversation. Jesus has helped the woman to understand her need and to see her sin. He's told her about God's grace and the free gift of the gospel. He has talked about this idea of eternal life. And as he got her face to face with her sin in verses 16 through 18, we see this interesting pivot once again in the conversation in verses 19 through 24. Now, some commentators, uh, they, they, they differ about how to understand what's going on here in verses 19 through 24. Some believe that she was starting to understand what Jesus was saying, and so she tried to engage him in a spiritual conversation about worship. Other commentators believe she was actually feeling really embarrassed and ashamed, and the conversation was awkward, and so she was deflecting and changing the conversation. She perceived he was uh, an important person, a religious person. And so rather than going any deeper into her own sin and her own story, let's talk about something else. I think that's actually probably what's going on. And the commentators that uh, come down on that point say that we should probably expect that there was a long pause between verse 18 and 19. Jesus said, you are right. You are right. And I'm telling you, I know your life. I know your sin. And then there's a pause. A long pause. And she says, I perceive you're a prophet. Let's talk about something else, shall we? Let's talk about worship. Now, regardless of what the woman's motivation was, she brings up an age-old religious question or a difference between Samaritans and Jews. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim, which was in view of the, of the, uh, the well where they were talking. They had a temple on that mountain. That's where they would worship. But the Jewish people worshipped on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And their temple was there. And the woman was asking Jesus, whom she realized was someone special at this point, who's right? Are the Samaritans right or are the Jews right about where we're supposed to worship? 
Well, Jesus used that as an opportunity to go even deeper and to drive the gospel of grace into her heart and her mind in an even more clear way. Look at what he says in verses 21 and following. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Twice in these verses, Jesus talks about the hour. The hour that is coming, the hour that has actually appeared there in the moment. And in John's gospel, the hour always refers to the hour of Jesus' death and the circumstances leading up to it. Jesus was saying to this woman, you are asking about the right place to worship, but you're asking the wrong question. The most important question is not where you worship, but the who of worship. Jesus was talking about the coming of the long-awaited Messiah who would come to bring salvation, who would come to bring peace between God and His people once again, the promised one who would remove alienation between God and His people, who would die on the cross in order for His people to be able to rightly worship the Father in spirit and truth, who would die on the cross as the ultimate and final sacrifice which would make temples irrelevant, who would die on the cross To enable his people to love and to worship the Lord from their heart and to live according to the word of his truth. And the woman seems like she was getting it because in verse 25, she specifically mentions the Messiah. I know the Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will explain all to us. And then Jesus in verse 26 makes one of the most clear and direct statements of his identity. The one you're talking to. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. So if we take a step back and we look at the content of what Jesus was saying to her, what did he do? What did he talk about? He talked about her sin. He led her to the reality that she is a sinner. That that was a problem. That she didn't have the ability to fix herself. And he told her that there was a gift. A gift from God that could solve the problem. It was something you can't earn. It's something that can be received for free. And this gift, it's living water. It's a water that quenches not just our thirst, but the thirst of our soul. And it wells up in us to eternal life. And Jesus is that one who is the living water. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. In other words, Jesus is the content of the conversation they had. It wasn't how she could be a better person. It wasn't how she should live a a life of better, uh, more good works than bad works. This wasn't a self-help conversation. It wasn't how she could have a wonderful life. The content of this conversation was the guilt of her sin and the grace of the gospel. And brothers and sisters in Christ, as we understand the content of what we have the privilege of telling people about, We don't need to get nervous or anxious about talking with someone about Jesus. We don't have to worry about not knowing what to say. Jesus shows us that it's pretty simple. We talk about the guilt that we have because we're sinners. 
We talk about the thirst that our souls have to be loved and accepted. And we talk about the free gift of the gospel, God's grace that quenches the thirst of our souls. And then the need to respond with faith. And that's kind of what we see as the result of the conversation, isn't it? In verse 25, she confesses that she knows that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then notice what she does in verses 28 and 29. The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She testified that Jesus knew her. He knew her life. She testified that this Jesus was more than just a man. She marveled and she wondered, could this be the one that has long been prophesied, the Messiah, the Christ? And what we see in this story, brothers and sisters in Christ, is nothing less than the power of God being at work. It is the power of God in and through a conversation that changes a heart. And as we realize that, and as we see it, it frees us up to have conversations with others. It's not us. It's the power of God working through us that changes hearts. Some of you know that I was, uh, had some vacation earlier in November, and I was down in Florida. I arrived on a Tuesday evening. And uh, essentially a day later is when Hurricane Nicole hit almost the exact same area where I was staying. I actually... Uh, I, I got there in the evening on Tuesday. On Wednesday morning, the area that I was saying was given not a mandatory, but a strongly encouraged evacuation route. So I actually left and went further south for a day in order just to get out of the, of the, 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 the way that the storm was coming. And I had a friend that actually stayed there where I was and actually went through the storm. And he said, and it was confirmed and through, through some of the weather sites, that the south part of the eye of the hurricane passed directly over where we were staying. And if you saw some of the footage, particularly up in the Daytona area, uh, there was massive damage. Houses fell into the ocean, just completely uh, taken over. But, you know, it, the interesting thing is it wasn't because of the strong winds. It was barely a Category 1 hurricane. It wasn't, it was winds that we get in Minnesota here sometimes. And it wasn't also, it wasn't either these massive waves that came over the top of these houses and, and took them into the, into the ocean. It was the power of the water. The place where I was staying, half of the dunes were just wiped away in a matter of a day. Massive amounts of sand were taken off of the beach a mile and a half out into the ocean. And the only way that it happened was this constant power of the ocean. It makes you be in awe of the power of the ocean. But brothers and sisters in Christ... That, comp that doesn't even compare to the power of the creator who creates the power of the ocean. And God says that when we talk to other people about Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to be anxious about. We have nothing to worry about because the power of the creator is at work in and through us to change hearts. That frees us up. It frees us up when given the opportunity to be kind, to treat people with dignity and respect and importance and to listen to them and to engage with them 
and to tell them about Jesus, to tell them about their need for him, to tell about the way that that need is met through a gift that is given to them freely, to tell them about how they can have the thirst of their souls quenched. Let's pray together. Father, it is something that scares us in so many ways. Just the idea of talking to somebody else about faith, talking about the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would remove that fear, that you would remove our worry. I also pray that you would remove our indifference, that you would give us a greater love to see more and more people come into the kingdom of God, to become part of the family of God. We pray, Father, that you would be at work in us and that you would give us those opportunities to be faithful in pointing people to Jesus, pointing to the one who has secured our peace with you. For we pray this in his name. Amen.